We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are here with an off-requested return guest. He is the two-time British champion and an award-winning author. He's also shown great longevity as a competitor near the top of the chess world. He's currently ranked number 42 in the world at, I believe, the age of 47. That's uh, his right. books. <laughs> Good. I forgot to fact check. His... Uh, <clears throat> His books, Game Changer and Chess for Life, were both co-authored with Natasha Regan and are both favorites of this podcast. You can hear us discuss them in episode 112. He, of course, also has written many other fantastic book, books. His new one, The Silicon Road to Chess Improvement, goes beyond just talking about Alpha Zero, as Game Changer famously did, and extracts lessons for humans from many of the other super engines. He's also a book reviewer for New in Chess magazine. He's been covering the World Championship for Kasparov Chess with Kasparov himself. So there is lots to talk about, and we have lots of great listener questions to dig into. But first, let's welcome Grandmaster Matthew Sadler back to Perpetual Chess. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. 
Yeah, excited to have you on. As we were just saying, there's so much to talk about, Matthew. But what I'd like to begin with is we've got to get some time management tips from you. And by time management, I don't just mean chess clock management, but I mean, how do you do so much stuff? It's just amazing. Like, what's what's your secret to being so productive? Um, I guess the the point is, is that I'm really only doing stuff that I that I really enjoy. You know, I mean, um, um, with chess, you know, I'm, um, I'm I'm analyzing continually. I guess, you know, I mean, I'm uh, I'm watching um, a lot of engine games all the time on the TCC, and I'm uh, I'm analyzing them continually. And then, you know, at some stage, it just sort of builds up. And then you've got lots of stuff that you can present at once, you know, it's, um, but it's, it's all to do with enjoyment really, you know, and, um, and uh, I, I don't rely on chess um, uh, for, uh, for my, you know, as my job, I have a, I have a full-time job. So, uh, you know, it, it's, um, I don't need to do anything, uh, you know, particularly commercial either. I can just, uh, you know, publish information and, uh, or publish videos or write some articles when I, you know, when I feel like it and it doesn't really matter to me. And, uh, I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a lovely freedom. I mean, uh, obviously I've been, I was professional for, uh, for quite a while before, you know, I've experienced the other side of it. And, uh, but I have to say, I much prefer it this way. I mean, I, I love chess. I, I can't, uh, I can't get away from it. You know, it's, uh, it's all I, it's, uh, you know, my, my very favorite way of spending my free time. And, um, uh, but you know, in this way I just get to do what I want. And then, yeah, you know, if I, fancy publishing it, I do it when I like, you know, so uh, it's a dream really, you know, from, from my point of view. Yeah. And your enthusiasm definitely comes across in, in everything that you do. Now, Matthew, right before we hit record, you did confess to me though, that for your, your, your non-chess work in IT, you work four days a week, right? That's right. Yeah. So that, that for any listeners wondering, that's a small a small bit of the mystery because even for your your new in chess review, which is your book reviews, which are indispensable, you're reading like five five books per month. It appears that that in itself, as someone who reads a lot of chess books, I, I'm impressed. Yeah, that that's uh, that is quite a bit of uh, yeah, that is quite a bit of work actually. It's uh, actually I'm, normally I read um, just a little bit more, and then you know I, I really only try to review books that um, that I particularly like. All books that are thought provoking, you know, I might not like them so much, but they they really, you know, I, I feel like, oh, well, they really made me think, you know, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, again, from that point of view, um, if it was, you know, just a sort of dull drudgery, then, um, you know, I think you'd, you'd probably stop quite quickly. But the, the quality of books that comes out nowadays is so good. You know, I mean, every single book, I'm learning something new and, and uh, seeing something interesting, you know, whether it's about an opening or, a, uh, you know, a, a great old player or old events or the middle game or anything you know there's um there's just so much fantastic information at the moment that uh that again it just remains a pleasure to keep on reading books yeah i feel the same way time is the only constraint really <laughs> it's not uh not the number of books to read so uh, again i have a sense of this from from reading your reviews but what are some of the, your recent favorites matthew Oh, there's there's quite a few actually. I mean, um, uh, I think one one that I want to mention is um, is winning by Nigel Short, and uh, maybe give him a shout out because he's in hospital at the moment with, uh, yeah. with COVID. So um, yeah, big shout out to Nigel. You know, keep on uh, keep on fighting. Hope you get better soon. I mean, what I liked about the book actually was the um, uh, in particular was the the structure. You know that um, that Nigel just took tournaments where he'd won, and you know sort of gave the, the good, the bad, and the ugly really. You know, um, and uh, I mean. That was something where I, I read it and I sort of thought, I wish I'd read this when I was younger, because um, you know I got very upset, you know, when I was playing. Often when I was playing good tournaments, if I played a bad game, you know, I thought, what, what's happening? You know, this doesn't sort of uh, fit into my great tournament. But you know, Nigel's just showing that you know, with a 
Um, even in a, a great tournament, you know, the great successes of his career, there were moments where he played less well, moments where he played badly, you know, where where things went wrong. But still, you know, the overall impression was was very, very positive. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, an enormously important practical lesson. And, uh, yeah, you know, that was one of the things where I thought, oh, I, if, I'd, if I'd read that when I was young, that would have been really, really useful. Um, I mean, other books that, that, I, that I've loved, um, the, the books on, um, on Bogolubov um, uh, by uh, Elkin Ruby. Um, so um, they were, I love those. I mean, Bogolubov's a big, um, yeah, a, a player I really like a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote quite a few uh, articles about his games on, um, on my blog at the time. And, uh, and uh, well, they've done a lovely job of presenting all his games and also, you know, getting together what the strengths of his play were. Because, um, you know, he, he was sort of a player who grew up in the, you know, the era of, of great champions, Capablanca, Lasker, Alakin. And, uh, you know, in comparison to those, of course, your, your play pales. You know, it's, uh, it's never going to look so impressive. But, uh, you know, somehow these books really brought out what his strengths were. You know, enormous optimism, a great all-round game, you know, good feel for the initiative. Uh, you know, for the time, a great, um, um, a, a very, a very not, not deep opening knowledge, but broad opening knowledge. You know, he could play pretty much anything. And um, yeah, I mean, um, again, you know, I think when I was 10 or 11, I, I just, you know, looked at Bogolubov's results in the World Championships and thought, oh, loser, you know, don't want to be like that. <laughs> having been a chess professional, having, you know, struggled so hard and, uh, you know, to get where I got, you know, which was, you know, sort of top 20, uh, you know, you understand really, you know, how how great the skill involved was in there. And you, under, you appreciate players like that a lot better. And, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, and that's one of the beautiful things nowadays. You know, I mean, people are bringing out books about players like that. And you can really appreciate, um, you know, these kind of lesser known players, you know, to their full extent. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he really played some wonderful games as well, uh, Bogolubov. So that was a, a very nice game. And I think just um, maybe the, uh, the final one to mention is a book by Jan Timmen, who's just been on the show, actually, but The Unstoppable American. And I thought that was a wonderful book because, uh, again, you know, it's all about this realism. Uh, it's the same thing that you had with with uh, with Nigel's book, um, because you know you sort of um, look back on you know how did um, how did Bobby achieve all his wonderful results, and uh, you sort of assume that it was just very smooth. You know, he just won all those games and nobody could resist him. But the number of games in which he was struggling, in which there were long grinds to victory and all that you know it's when you see it in context um you know it really gives you an idea of this was a human being you know uh, who who just you know got himself together in an incredible way um you know in order to play at a, at a very high level but it wasn't smooth you know it wasn't plain sailing and uh, and again i think those are very valuable lessons you know for uh, for young players to take away you know to get a realistic idea about what you need what's it costs in order to get to the top and um you know, I, I think that when I was young, I, I didn't really have that that very good sense of it, and I, I maybe thought at times that things were way too difficult or should be too easy somehow. You know, and I think books like this really give a very good impression of, of what it takes to be to become the best. Yeah, it was interesting to read that even the legendary Taimanov six zero air quotes wipeout. The games were quite competitive. They were great. They were really good. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean Taimanov was a very interesting player. You know, I mean uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit. Um, fragile, flaky, you could say, but you know, um, maximum strength was was very, very high. You know, and uh, but again, you know, it was just amazing how how um, you know Bobby at um, you know at, at just at the at the critical moments of the game, he was able to to marshal himself and give um, you know absolute a hundred percent concentration. You know, and uh, and uh, and probably that's something that you know Taimanov just couldn't 
just couldn't quite manage to the same extent, you know, and uh, and that's why all this, and, you know, I mean, just Taimanov was incredibly unlucky, of course, that all the crucial moments turned against him somehow. You know, every single time Bobby managed to, uh, you know, to, to, to find something and, and turn it around, not just from a, you know, from a worse position to a draw, but, for, you know, to, to a win for him. You know, and um, and you know, from that point of view, I think um, when we look at the recent performance of of Magnus against Young, I think we're seeing exactly the same thing. You know, um, yeah, that was a point that Jan Timmen highlighted it as well. I mean, if you just look at chess styles, Fisher wouldn't necessarily be the first cop to Carlson, but but because of uh, because of their ability, their their competitive drive, their their ability to to win the tight games um, stands out for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think if you look at this match, I think you know, what, what I really felt was the big difference was uh, was Magnus's um, um, experience in World Championship matches. Because uh, I mean, you have a look just at the chances that both players had. Um, you know, Magnus had ch- chances, you know, a tiny one in Game Six, and then bigger ones in Games Eight, Nine, and Eleven, and he scored four out of four. And Jan had chances in Games Two and Game Six, and scored half out of two. And, um, you know, you, you sort of feel that, um, you know, that the difference there was that, you know, Magnus, uh, you know, he's been in, in lots of world championships. He's, he's got, I think, you know, a, a, a now a sort of intuitive, emotional sense of when the critical moments in a match are. And at those moments, you know, he, he knows that he has to marshal himself 100% in order to, uh, to make the most of it because opportunities in world championships are, are few and far between. And um, uh, I mean, you know, the 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 games that he won, um, you know, eight, nine, eleven were you know relatively simple chances. But still, if you look at the um, the execution, you know, once he got it to a technical uh, end game, the the quality of execution there, you couldn't have got much better from Stockfish. I mean, really, uh, you know, I was looking at the evaluations from Sesse, you know, this. Uh, um, this Norwegian, a very strong uh, hardware that analyzes the games. And, you know, it's just increasing move by move, you know, the evaluation, which I can tell you is very, very unusual. You know, it's a really high uh, class of, uh, of, um, of technique, which means that his concentration was extremely high there. You know, and then you look at Jan and, um, and um, you know, uh, the, the chances that he had game two, which was... You know, actually a very good chance in game six. Um, I mean, game two was very complicated, a very strange position. But it is the type of position that you'd say, OK, if Jan's going to beat Magnus, that would be the one I'd give him, right? I mean, uh, yeah. um, and but you sort of felt that, um, that Jan kept on playing at sort of normal world championship intensity. You know, he didn't. And, uh, you know, really that feeling of this is it. This is my moment. This is where everything I've got has got to go on the table. You know, um, uh, looking back at the moves, they feel sort of a, a little loose, I guess. You know, um, uh, just just not quite the same quality as uh, as Magnus at those moments. And I think that was really the, you know, for me that was the the big difference between the uh, the two players. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. And there's and of course you were doing a lot of work with your engines in conjunction. You made a few videos, sort of going down rabbit holes of various. Uh, um, positions uh, working with the super engines, and I know we we had briefly mentioned before we started recording. You saw Peter Hein Nielsen's um, game recap, uh, or sorry, match recap with uh, I am Sagar Shah of Chessbase India, as I mentioned uh, in last week's interview with Erwin Lemay. Definitely a must watch. But it was interesting to me that Peter found time to sort of 
to look through some of the engine games you'd shared, the the engine on engine in various positions. So how did how did it feel to find that out? And were you in were you in like direct contact with Peter or how did how did that come about? No, no, not in direct contact with Peter, but I know that he follows the the TCC games, uh, the website where they uh, where they do these where they did these games. He follows it quite closely. I mean, he's a big engine fan. I mean, I think um, you know when. When uh, Alpha Zero came out, that was really a you know a big trigger for uh, for Peter. I mean, he really got you know very uh, into the games, and uh, you know I think that's the sign of a good trainer, right? I mean, something new comes along, and you think, right, okay, you know, um, you know, how can we use that, you know, to get an advantage? And well, certainly, I think you know if you look at uh, at how Magnus played in 2019 and the types of games he played as well, you know, I think he he got some inspiration from uh, you know from the whole Alpha Zero thing, you know, which. Uh, of course, you know that's the the huge thing about Magnus. I think you must you you can probably just show him an idea in uh, you know just in five seconds, and then you can just apply it, you know, just like that. But uh, um, so I mean, yeah, no, I, I'm not surprised that he was following the games. But it, I mean, but he seemed really, really up to date with absolutely everything, which was uh, which was uh, you know very very impressive indeed, you know. But um, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it was a very interesting thing to do. I mean, we, we'd. Um, we talked, um, um, you know, I mean, the TCC site, it's a site of volunteers, right? And uh, they just, uh, you know, they're just doing this all in their spare time and running these uh, enormous tournaments. And, um, uh, yeah, we sort of discussed about, oh, would it be interesting to kibitz during the uh, the match? But, you know, somehow it didn't, it felt like, you know, everyone else would be doing that. But this whole idea of um, taking critical positions from the match afterwards and then, you know, replaying them with uh, these superhuman strength engines just to get a real sense of, you know, what might have happened happened and uh and what was the actual objective result you know was uh, was fantastic i mean it's something that i've talked a lot about in um in uh, the silicon road to chess improvement you know this way of uh, of training and it's the way basically that i've been analyzing more or less since um since uh yeah started doing all the work on alpha zero and it's just such a powerful way of um of doing it because you know if you just let an, an engine analyze um um you know just on one move however deep you want to do it you know still there there's all this doubt about is you know okay i can see this line uh, you know 50 ply deep but is it really going to happen you know when the engines actually have to make decisions on um, on uh, on moves you know they you see a whole game unfolding you see the flow of the game you know quite apart from the moves themselves you understand oh is that does that look difficult for um for black to play or is that easy you know uh, all those sort of things those sort of very human emotions come out of it and you know if you run a a, a match of uh, of um of 10 games you know from uh, from similar positions you know you get uh, you know one game of each color 20 games and you just see that flow afterwards you get a brilliant sense of um you know when when did the game turn when was it uh, too late when did white still have chances for example you know and uh, it's all about um I mean, it's really all about, um, you know, how can you use uh, engines to to give you those human feelings and emotions about games? And how can you, you know, have engine analysis that lives in your head rather than just being it, uh, you know, sort of a a watch of, uh, of text in chess space that you're trying to decipher, you know, and trying to understand whether it works or not. And, uh, you know, I mean, what I found, you know, probably that's part of getting a bit older as well, you know, but, um, um, but, you know, I, I'm, I, I enjoy long variations, um, uh, less, 
But what I enjoy very much are, you know, evocative games, evocative variations, variations that aren't necessarily, you know, the complete truth about a position, but that really capture the essence of what the position's about. Is it an attacking position? Is it a position where I should play positionally? You know, and uh, and playing lots and lots of engine games like that is um, is a lovely way to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the TCC was was fantastic. I mean, you know, thanks to those games, you know, you zoom in on something like game six and you see, well, Nepo could have taken twice on on B4 or move 35 and move 36. And, you know, with the engine games that were played, you could see very clearly that, well, move 35 taking on B4 was actually more or less drawn in a, in a couple of ways, you know. Um, then taking on move uh, B, on B4 on move 36, that was really dangerous, but possibly still a draw, you know, some ways to uh, to hold. You know, Leela got very close to holding it against uh, Stockfish and uh, Stockfish managed to hold it against Leela for, for Magnus, you know. So, you know, really amazing insights, you know, that you get from that. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, you know, in in, in, the, in the book and also in the supplementary material, like, you know, trying to explain how you do that and also give the, you know, the step-by-step instructions how to do it. And I can really, you know, I really recommend it to to absolutely everyone to uh, to work with engines in this way. That's really interesting that even even those moments that people highlighted in Game 6 where uh, Nepo near the, near the first time control could have... Again, air quotes, taken control may have been drawn. And Peter Hein Nielsen, correct me if I'm wrong, but he also highlighted in the interview with Sagar that in game five, everyone was highlighting when Nepo didn't go C4 and C5 to sort of put the clamps down and achieve this bind. But I believe Peter also said that that the engines were holding that for black. Yeah, I mean, but th- there's there's the that then becomes very interesting because then the sort of the human judgment comes in. I mean, um, after this move C4 in game uh, or move 20 in um, in uh, in game five, you know, the engines were were holding it by playing this move. A queen e6, which is a, a very odd move. It puts the queen opposite the light squared bishop, but pins this this pawn on c4, so it can't advance. But you know, human. Oh, you know, if I if I if I played a move like that in a game, it would be you know, it would probably be the the you know the thing that I said. Okay, well, I, I think I've got to do this, but I'm uh, I'm a little bit yeah. nervous, you know. And um, and I think you know those are the things, of course, that you've also got to keep in mind. Um, you know, when you look at all this fantastic engine analysis, is uh, you've always got to keep the human perspective in mind of uh, how difficult is this? You know, um, is, is this a move? Does this have you know any any? Does this move that the engine wants? Does it have any character? Characteristics that would make it, you know, difficult for me as a human to find, and you've never got to lose sight of that because, because um, you know, it, it's a very, in a way, the World Championship is very funny, right? Because you know, you've got two human players with all their, you know, wonderful players, but with their frailties and their limited uh, memories and uh, and calculating abilities, mm-hmm. analysing for months and months beforehand with you know superhuman uh, strength uh, engines, and then afterwards having to, you know take the battle not against a superhuman strength engine not against uh, objectivity or the objective truth of chess but against another human being with all his frailties you know and uh, and this makes it you know there's um, i think you know probably the the role of seconds in um, in world championship preparation has changed you know enormously because i think you know beforehand you um, you know just from my experiences analyzing in the being a second for Joel Lutti in the in the pre computer age you know before you had a void and you had to fill that with ideas and now you've just got a mass of data and you've just got to pick out promising ideas, ideas that a human opponent might have overlooked, um, ideas that you know contain poison that would be difficult for a human. It's a, a big translation you know, that has to take place and um, requires a lot of inventiveness, a lot of uh, practical cunning, and, uh, you know, but a very different sort of creativity, I think, nowadays. 
Yeah, it was interesting to me that Peter Hein Nielsen again said that the days where engine where uh, seconds need to stay up all night are over because the engines are so strong that they can. It's more yeah. a matter of cultivating. Yeah, I, I, I mean. It, it, it was kind of, um, you know, I mean, you, you, you really see a big shift, um, you know, I, I'd say pre-alpha zero to post-alpha zero. Um, you know, that's that's uh, probably not something that the, that the engine guys particularly like if you describe it like that. But just from, a, you know, from from the practical chess player point of view, that's how it uh, sort of feels. But, you know, pre, uh, you know, around 2017, you know, of course you were totally smashed by any of the uh, of the engines you know they'd just been way stronger for so long but you still had the idea that you had a lot to um uh, to offer um in terms of um opening uh, understanding and also positional understanding you know i mean simply um the um uh, certainly uh, in the opening you know uh, stockfish at the time somehow didn't quite have that um the urgency that humans have in the in the opening you know the the the, the desire to to, to make the most of, of the initial momentum that you have when you're developing your pieces, you know, and uh, and from that point of view, you know, Stockfish's general opening play was was not that strong, you know, whereas, of course, the rest of its game was already at, uh, you know, 3,500 ELO strength. Um, and then, um, and also, you know, in, in uh, for, for positional ideas, you often had the feeling, well, I understand this position better, you know, and uh, what, what, what's being suggested here is not right. You know, you move to, to Alpha Zero and um, you know, Alpha Zero uh, sort of brought you know really two things uh, I think you know first of all the realization that a lot of the you know the the, the whole sacrificial area of the game uh, pawns for long term compensation exchange sacrifices for long term compensation that was you know a part of the game that we sort of thought oh that's probably not very good because all of everything every time we try it you know we just lose to uh, to stockfish but you know alpha zero showed that that was possible and now to be honest if you look at uh, at engine games nowadays they're just replete with sacrifices you know just all over the place i mean it's it's quite amazing um but the other thing that happened was that um you know you suddenly realized that um actually the engines uh, you know alpha zero was the the first of course but it's all the engines nowadays um they're actually stronger than you in the opening and in the um and uh, in positional play they actually understand stuff um, um a lot better than you and uh um, and that's, you know, something really, really uh, interesting to think about, to think about, you know, why is that and, and how could I how could I emulate that? Um, but, um, you know, it, it's um, they're really, you know, f there has been just a huge shift, you know, from 2018 onwards, where essentially engines, I think, you know, just became much stronger at all parts of the game, you know, not just um, not just uh, tactics and defense and, uh, you know, and combinations. Yeah, well, I think the question of how can I emulate them, that, let's be real, that's that's the question a lot of listeners want to know, because we're never going to calculate perfectly, we're always going to make mistakes, and certainly from having read and enjoyed the Silicon Road to Chess Improvement, I have my own conclusions that I could share, but first I'd like to to hear yours, so especially for club players, because obviously you're, you've been an elite player for decades, so you're, you're coming at it from a different perspective, but let's say uh below below 2000 something like that can we still learn from like 3600 against 3600 engine games yeah i mean the point is you know i mean i am absolutely convinced that we should try and uh, you know it shouldn't be a question of trying to make machines play human like it should be we should be trying to play a bit more machine like but really on on one specific area and um um i mean actually 
Demis Asabi said this to uh, to Natasha and, and, and I when we were writing Game Changer, but it didn't quite um, um, it didn't quite hit me uh, until uh, I heard a, a, a Leader Zero developer say something very similar. But you know. The, the major strength of the engines, an, an engine like Leela Zero, is in the evaluation. It's you know, and calculation adds uh, you know maybe uh, a quarter of its extra strength. But it's all about evaluation. You just take Leela. I mean, it's it's what I did in the in the Silicon Road. You know, I did this match against Leela, where it calculates not a single move. It's just uh, purely going on its evaluation. And um, well, I made you know sort of uh, seventy seventy eight percent or something against it. But you know. For, for for something that's not calculating a single move in such a tactical game as chess, that's incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, apparently, I was talking to the leader to, to a, a very nice uh, leader guy who uh, explains a lot to me. And you know, he was saying that uh, well, they got stronger and stronger. Probably could expect that Leela just evaluating, not calculating a single move, is something like twenty five hundred, twenty five fifty strength. And um, mm. you know, and what they're working on continually is to make it, you know, even stronger that it's, you know, elite GM strength without calculating a single move, just on evaluating the position. And you know, it really made me think about because um, you know, in all my career, I have spent so many hours working at chess, but I have never consciously thought I need to work on my evaluation. I've practiced my tactics. I've uh, you know practiced learning end games. I've worked hard on openings. I've looked at typical middle games, but I've never really thought about um, you know um, how how do I improve my evaluation of positions? And uh, you know when you, again you know that's, that struck me so much when I was then analysing just normal quiet positions with Alpha Zero and seeing that a lot of my evaluations were just off. You know I was saying oh. This must be, uh, you know, good for good for uh, good for good for white, but it wasn't. Or this must be good for black, and it and it wasn't. And you know, just um, uh, and then you do it, you know, you do it again with with Lilo, with Stockfish, and you see that um, that a lot of your evaluations are are off from that point of view. And um, you know, what well, you know, the, I, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, why why could this be, you know, and um, and I, I frankly think that it's um, it's to do with all the terrible material that I. <laughs> <laughs> that I grew up with, you know, because, you know, you, you look at all these, um, at the books that you grew up with and, and, uh, you know, many of them actually contain very bad analysis. I mean, you, um, uh, you run them past the engine and, uh, you know, half of the games have got huge tactical mistakes and, um, you know, even, you know, classic games in which they demonstrate you know the the power of um of a, of a, a weak complex of dark squares you know you put it on the engine and the engine says yeah but you know the opponent was winning until the end it was just uh right. yeah, it was just something wrong and um and somehow you know that hasn't affected you badly you know uh, this uh, this bad material i mean somehow you know that incredible human ability to just abstract uh, you know, um, just the the essence of something, and not remember the details. You know, as uh, that that's added to your knowledge, and that that's made you strong. But I think you know what you learn from the engines is that um, you know you've got the um, the outer theme that you can see, like you know, for example, uh, an isolated queen's pawn, or um, um, or uh, uh, weak dark squares, or, or whatever. Um, and uh, but there's also you know a huge amount of of stuff going inside that's not immediately visible. Like I think you know the inner harmony of the pieces, and um, uh, you know the way that the pieces work together. And I mean, if you've ever you could you can experiment with this yourselves. I've I've done it, and I saw uh, who was it who did it as well? Sam Shankland in um, in his book on um, uh, on pawns. I'm not sure. Uh, um, I'm not sure which 
what, what the name is anymore, but uh, you know, great book on uh, on uh, just focusing on pawns. And he was just moving pawns, you know, one square back, one square forward, or you move a piece, one square left, one square right, and it makes ma- a massive difference to the position. You know, you could say that this this game is all about um, about uh, um, a weak uh, complex of dark squares, but move a knight in the position from g7 to f7, and suddenly you know the theme's completely different. The dark squares don't seem to be weak anymore. So there's this wonderful interaction, I think, you know, of um, of uh, you know the theme that you can see on the board, and also the inner workings, the inner harmony of the piece, you know, between the position and between the um, uh, your pieces and the opponent's pieces, and uh, and I think that's what you know engines pick up really, really well. You know, they have this incredible, great sense of mobility and um, and um, and the way that pieces have to be placed, and um, and I think that um, you know. Probably that's sort of something that you wouldn't pick up from from bad examples, you know, that you uh, looked at when you were young, because that was that was pretty random, really. Whether you know whether whether that that inner harmony of the pieces was good or not, it was all about demonstrating an, an outer theme. And I do think that young players nowadays, growing up with enormously high quality material, on which you know, if there's an example in a book, it's not only correct, you know, from the thematic point of view, but also from the you know, from, from the correct, from the tactical point of view as well. You know, I think they're, they're going to be, I think they are going to be having, you know, much better evaluations than uh, than players of my generation, or much more, uh, I think, much more sophisticated uh, evaluations, you know. And um, and to be honest, you know, when I see games by Ali Reza, you know, recently, uh, you know, I really have the feeling that this guy, you know, has, uh, you know, again, evaluation on a, on, a, on, a, on a much higher level, you know. And it's not about just about calculation or anything. It's just understanding where the pieces go understanding how they how they burn through the board you know and uh, and show the most uh, activity and um and uh, you know and, and i mean so that's something that you know I, i've been trying uh, i've been you know thinking about that and thinking oh you know how could you reprogram yourself but i mean you know going back to what can people learn from it you know we don't need to, to look at calculation what we need to look at is the most is the core of the engines really the most impressive part and that's how they evaluate positions and um, and uh, and I think there's a, an awful lot to learn, you know, from uh, from that. Man, so many follow-ups. Whether it be about uh, Ali Reza, of course, who's fascinating. Um, let's let's start with that one. Um, and uh, by the way, I should say the Shanklin book is called uh, "Small Steps to Giant Improvement." Oh, that's the one. Yeah. And of course, there's a there's a sequel as well. But with Ali Reza, so it, you mentioned what you observe from going through his games. Do you see like an engine footprint? Do you think that that these insights that he's able to derive that are sort of superior to a lot of uh, his contemporaries are based on engine work from what you've seen, Matthew? Uh, I think, yeah, I, I would definitely think, you know, he, I mean, it's I think nowadays a player growing up is always influenced. I mean, whether it's working a lot with an engine or just using material that's been rigorously engine checked, you know, in this, in this perfect in every way. But, you know, I, I just saw, you know, just saw some games, you know, there was um, um, uh, one against Erdos, I think it was uh, recently in the European team championship where he played this, you know, this artificial uh, casting maneuver, King D7, C7, B8 in, uh, in some sort of Karakhan. And, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've also seen this uh, quite, Quite a lot in uh, in engine games, these sort of uh, um, uh, artificial casting maneuvers, and it just makes everything perfect. You know, it just makes sense of the position, and um, and you know, and then there was a, uh, and then he followed up also by playing b five and a five. You know, in front of his king, it was it's kind of that mixture of um, of uh, you know very concrete play. 
um, but also just this this real understanding of where his pieces are going to be at their most active. You know, and uh, I really think that that's something that you that's something you get very strongly from analysing uh, engine games nowadays. You know, I mean, uh, they they really are amazing at uh, at making the very most of uh, you know of um, really getting optimal squares for the pieces. You know, in in all sorts of positions. So yeah, I mean, I I think that um, you know that that Ali Reyes is a very good example of somebody who's uh, who's been I think very positively influenced by engines. You know, either directly working with them or by the you know by the incredible material that's now available because of them yeah uh, you have some great examples of castling by hand by hand and the general treatment of the king uh in in your book so i can i can definitely see that but i think that that's that's going to be challenging for club players because i think part of what they struggle with generally is like when to break the rules and now this this sense of harmony that you described there's sort of a ineffability i think for for anyone who's not, you know, not a grandmaster, let alone a, a, a super engine. But one lesson that, to me, I think that we can derive from a watching the World Championship and from the engines is just, as you mentioned earlier, the sort of uh, uh, utter lack of regard for material. Like, you know, and any club player who's worried about sacrificing, like, you know, your move might be unsound, but you shouldn't worry too much that it's just going to be like effortlessly beaten back if you can yeah, put your yeah. opponent to the test. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, there was um, uh, there was a recent uh, Deep Mind paper. It was called Acquiring Acquiring Knowledge acquiring knowledge or how alpha zero acquires knowledge i mean that was the uh, we, i mean we gave um, a um, a talk recently at the london chess classic and uh, natasha did um, did um, uh, uh, three or four great slides on um, on uh, on this new paper and uh, it just uh, they essentially what they try to do they try to understand you know how does alpha zero gain knowledge i mean what is important and one of the the beautiful things that came out of it and that, that natasha highlighted was that um you know, when Alpha Zero starts off, it's it's virtually random. Um, but it's only really when it gets a sense of what is material, how much are my pieces worth, that suddenly all the rest of its game fits into place. And then once all that's happened, once it's got that idea, this sort of value for its pieces, then actually the value of material drops and and it starts being able to sacrifice again. But, you know, so I think, um, you know, what, what you talk about, if you're talking about thinking, you know, talking about uh, what the players need to learn, you know, how do they progress from beginner to strong player? You know, there are, you know, as always, there are these phases where I think, first of all, you need to get a good grip of how much my piece is worth. You know, why is it not good to swap off a rook for somebody's pawn, you know, or, or something like that? And I, I actually, to be honest, I, I've been playing against my nephew, uh, who's uh, seven, and uh, strangely keen on chess. Uh, oh, that's great. Time. But but he's uh, you know again for him you see that he's really struggling with that concept that uh, you know he he gets a pawn for for a rook and uh, and he says I've got a pawn <laughs> I've, <Right>. got, <laughs> I've got a guy you know you've got a guy yeah. but I've got a guy and um, yeah and you see that you know you that was what you sort of gathered from these uh, alpha zero graphs but once um you know once you um uh, it understood about material you could see again a differentiation in in all the themes it was suddenly able to discover and then afterwards the value of material dropped as it started to learn more and more that hey wait a minute you know um this is not uh, as rigid a scale i can start giving up the exchange start giving up pawns for mobility and other themes that are important but um it's um yeah i mean that was really that was really uh, fascinating as well but i think you know certainly where we are you know nowadays with um with what we can learn from engines you know yeah the value of sacrificing pawns especially exchanges you know for uh, yeah. for um uh, for long term compensation i mean that's uh, that's a, an enormous part of the game you know 
Yeah. And on the topic of the evolution of AlphaZero, uh, Mark Javes, supporter of the podcast, actually wrote in and he was curious spe- specifically about the uh, the evolution of opening. So he was wondering, <clears throat> excuse me, did did AlphaZero start, like, did it trace the evolution of chess where you start out with more of the romantic type openings like uh, the Evans and King's Gambit he mentioned and then get more sound? Did it follow that path? Yeah, that, that's a lovely question. Um as far as I can gather, no, not really. Um, I mean, what really happened was that AlphaZero started off playing very randomly and then seemed to get, um, it looks like, you know, it got a grasp of uh, of certain um, uh, of uh, of certain uh, concepts and um, and uh, and uh, yeah, and, and ways of thinking. And then afterwards, it went pretty much to to uh, yeah to the main lines, you know. So you start seeing very quickly once uh, it's got past. Uh, um, you know, a, a short initial burst of training, it starts going on to uh, to Rilo, to the Rilo pairs, you know, and uh, and then you know moves on from there. But you know, mainline E four uh, E four D four openings, you know, it's uh, it didn't really follow the uh, it doesn't have a like a romantic phase, you know, and uh, and and stuff like that. As far as I can uh, as far as I can tell, you know, it's uh, no. it just it just basically had a period of not playing very well, playing quite randomly, and then all of a sudden everything clicking into place and uh, and then it just starts uh, you know just starts playing you know stronger and stronger, but in you know in in the classical way that uh, that it played towards the end, really. No romance from those computers. No romance, no. <laughs> I guess it's not too surprising. Well, Matthew, we have a ton of good listener questions that I want to get into, but first let's uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. What is new from Chessable, you ask? Well, friend of the pod FM, Camille Plicta, just dropped Lifetime Repertoire's Accelerated Dragon. I know a lot of Accelerated Dragon enthusiasts have been waiting for that, and I've heard rave reviews. I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, has a Keep It Simple Black repertoire coming soon. And of course, whether it be an opening course, a tactics course, um, or an endgame course on Chessable, you can utilize their proprietary space repetition technology to make sure you learn the lessons that are being imparted. So be sure to go to chessable.com and have a look at what's new. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. So, Matthew, as I said, we've got uh, a long list of good questions for you. But one thing I wanted to hit before we get to them is one point that I found really interesting in Silicon Road to Chess Improvement. One of those uh, nod your head as you read moments was where you mentioned a conversation you had with Grandmaster Jonathan Tisdale about the the more pronounced evaluation values, um, where suddenly where it used to be it might be plus one in a position, but now it's uh plus five, even though material might be even in a given position, that's been happening more and more with engines. And so what's, what's your explanation for that? Yeah, they're just getting better and better. That's the, <laughs> that's the, yeah. that's the problem. I mean, um, uh, I mean, it was, it was very noticeable actually in game 11, you know, and um, I was watching Anish Giri's uh, commentary, excellent actually, um, uh, together with Judith Poldar and, uh, you know, um, Magnus reached this rook ending and the engine was saying plus six, you know, and Anish was right. saying, "Well, yeah, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, it, it doesn't feel plus six to me. I mean, yeah. plus six is, it's a rook and a pawn, right? And, and you know, the guy's still got a rook <laughs> on the board. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that is one of the um, one of the uh, um, I, I guess the difficulties. I mean, this is uh, particularly, you know. Um, uh, what you've got to be a little bit careful about is that different engines have different scales of evaluation. So, you know, Stockfish is is quite uh, extreme from uh, from that point of view. Leela is much more restrained. You know, I mean, um, uh, you know, I think you know something like zero point zero seven for Leela would be plus three, plus four for um, for Stockfish. So, you know, I mean, uh, you you know, that's slightly different, but certainly, you know. Engines, uh, the evaluations have, be, have become more and more extreme. But yeah, I mean, you look at the result of the games that they that they evaluate like that, and it's always correct. It's not like they're uh, they're getting over optimistic and then uh, scaling back. It's simply that they're you know they're seeing much much earlier um, you know when a position is just you know completely winning. And um, uh, yeah, I mean that makes it uh, tricky for uh, you know for humans to calibrate themselves a little bit because uh, um, yeah. You know, it really depends on the position, but obviously, you know, a, a plus five from an engine could be uh, could be something quite horrifically scary. You know, and uh, and uh, um, you know that a human would would find very very difficult to replicate. You know, and uh, and even you know plus five for a rook ending. You know, when you're you're, you're just one pawn up. You know, just feels uh, incredible. But I mean, in general those those evaluations have to be trusted. But again, you know, just in terms of um, of uh, of uh, applying it to human play. I mean, you know, I, I think. Probably what we're, you know, we're being asked at the moment. Uh, it's the same thing that you know that I, that I mentioned for, uh, for, you know, for the for the World Championship second. You know, you you do have to make some sort of translation for yourself all the time back into human play. You know, and um, uh, and some engines make it easier. I think you know Leela's evaluation uh, uh, evaluations are much closer to what. Um, I think you know to, to human evaluations, uh, you know, as we uh, as we see them, and you know they're scaled differently, and um, and also you know Leela's evaluation it, it always takes into account the possibility that the opponent might make some errors and some blunders. So you know that's why it tends to to scale stuff down a little bit. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there's always you're always going to have to to do some sort of translating back into uh, into uh, human terms about what an engine is saying. But you know, I think the the evaluations in themselves are objectively absolutely correct. You know, plus five, yeah. means, uh, it's going to be a win. Uh, you know, against uh, against uh, best play and uh, no arguments. Yeah, I guess in a sense the results are binary. Either it's a win or it's a draw. So if it knows it's a win, it's going to start to skew higher. And if it knows it's a draw, it's yeah. going to skew lower. I mean, um, what, what was very what was very interesting, and that's uh, again coming back to the value of playing engine matches, was that you know these uh, this ending in game six, you know, on move thirty six um, between um, Magnus and uh, and Jan, you know, if if Jan had played Bishop takes B four, you know, the engines were were only at plus one point five plus two or something. You know, and it was sort of um, one of the uh, stockfish developers. Uh, mi minus, right? Yeah, minus, minus. Uh, sorry, that's right. Yeah, and uh, one of the stockfish developers said, "Well, you know, that's quite incredible, really. That you know, even at this late stage in the game, you know, lots of pieces exchanged. You know, for the engines, it's not it's not like a clear win. I mean, it's it's clearly much better for black, but they're not yet sure whether it's going to be whether that's going to convert to a to a clear win or not. And um, uh, and again, you know, that's the value of playing out engine games. You know, you 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 put the engine on at uh, at move uh, at move thirty six, it'll tell you it'll tell you minus two, but is that going to be a win or not? You're not sure. You let them play the game, you know, searching ever deeper as they get further and further into the position. And you get a much better idea of whether it was actually a win or not, you know? So um, it's, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, um, 
I, I thought you know that was again a, a very interesting demonstration of the of the power of, of of engine games. You know, from that point of view. Yeah, and we'll have more on that on some of these listener questions. So let's dig into them. Uh, the first one is from Evan Rosenberg, who asks. He says. When Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, the chess world collectively shook for fear that machines had permanently surpassed the capabilities of the human mind. And I distinctly remember Kasparov's suspicions after game two when he appeared convinced that there was some human interference because no machine could possibly demonstrate such finesse. Fast forward to today and any chess enthusiast can download the Stockfish app at no cost with instant access to a super powerful engine to use casually or as seriously as one desires. Can you specify at what point did chess machines become less imposing and threatening and more helpful and awe-inspiring? And do you see a return to the idea that humans are at risk of, uh, for a lack of a better term, chess extinction? Extinction. Yeah, I mean, just taking the last question first, I mean, chess extinction, I think if it was going to happen, it would already have happened. You know, I mean, um, I mean, I retired from professional chess in 1999. And um, I mean, there were many reasons for it. But you know, one of the reasons that I had was um, uh, that, you know, I, I really thought that, you know, four or five years, um, you know, engines are you know, there are going to be just be so much stronger than humans that nobody's going to be interested in watching uh, humans play. I mean, people are just going to be, have the engines there and just be able to to laugh at grandmasters, you know, whilst they play. But actually, it's turned out, you know, completely differently. And, um, you know, the, the beautiful thing about it is that obviously people do get a lot of pleasure from watching chess, from watching the best human players play. But one of the big impediments was that they didn't have a clue what was going on. And, um, you know, engines have, have, have filled in that gap. And, uh, you know, you still need the human commentary like, you know, Anish and, uh, and, and Judith and, and Fabiano and, you know, and all these great players. You still need that to give, you know, the, the, the real insight. But in terms of knowing basically the evaluation of the position and what's going on and, and a, few, uh, a few little lines, you know, engines have really helped with that. So I don't think we're ever going to go to to chess extinction. I mean, you know, just uh, um, I think you know this 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 way of um, of playing and 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 uh, and, uh, and top level chess is going to carry on for um, you know for a very very long time. And I mean, when did engines get less less scary? I guess simply when when they you know when they landed on your desktop and you were able mm -hmm. to do really cool things with them. You know, and and then suddenly people thought you know very human of course, but oh god, I can get an advantage over someone else if I only know how to use this tool properly. And, um, you know, it's, uh, and, um, you know, I, I, you know, but it was quite funny. I mean, when Natasha and I did Chess for Life, you know, we interviewed um, uh, Pia Kramling, uh, you know, absolutely lovely lady and, uh, you know, very, very strong player. But she said that um, in the pre-computer age, she worked a lot with her husband, uh, um, Juan Bellon, you know, who was a incredibly creative player, very strong in openings. And uh, she felt that she had a big advantage you know, because they were working together and, uh, and and finding these incredible ideas. And then the computer came along and it destroyed, you know, all of that advantage. And neither of them were computer literate. So it was a huge panic for them. And then, you know, eventually they managed to, you know, to get to grips with it and, um, and uh, you know, and adjust to the modern age. But, um, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, um, uh, and I mean, Judith says something very similar, that she didn't particularly want to work with engines, but she realized that you had to do it um, because it gave, you know, such a massive adv advantage and, and such a massive disadvantage if you didn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as soon as they became available on your local PC and, um, and, and useful, that uh, you know, players change their attitude to them, uh, to them really, and um, and I think you know, for for modern players, it would be unthinkable not to have an engine. I, I, I remember I talked to um, to Robin van Kampen, a young uh, Dutch uh, GM at uh, 
at um, at uh, a four NCL one time, and uh, you know, talking about um, about the old days and the old guys. It was then that, to my shock, that I realised that he, he he considered me as as an old guy, <laughs> you know, and one of the dinosaurs. But anyway, that's that's something else. But you know, trying to explain to him that, yeah, you know, Robin, you know, I could I could spend uh, two weeks analysing, you know, uh, Bishop G five Nidorf poison porn, and uh, after two weeks, I wouldn't really be sure, you know. <laughs> what, what the evaluation was i just got a bit further you know and uh, and then somewhere later maybe in the next month i'd try and spend another two weeks you know to to get further and he's looking at me like you know are, are you <laughs> what's the fun in that you know what and it, you know it's really a, you know a, a, a way of working that people that you know modern players probably can't even imagine at all uh, nowadays so you know i think for them you know uh you took what you take away their engine that would be you know like an ultimate crime somehow you know whereas uh um, you know, players of, of my generation, we still remember the um, good old days. You know, it's uh, with the good and 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 the bad. You know, it's uh... yeah. One of uh, in, during one of the broadcasts on Ishgiri, speaking of fear of the engines, he was talking about Magnus, and he said that basically that Magnus fears no human, and he fears no human move. But but what he does fear is engine prep. So. And and I think that might get to the recent talk about potentially retiring. I I do think that even though he came up with these creative ideas, he's you know his team, I should say, he and his team, um, and you know showed this lack of materialism that the engines uh, events, as we've discussed. But I do think that the sort of arms race of like dodging these landmines by the engine um, might contribute to his lack of enthusiasm for the World Championship in particular. Um, as a as a quick digression, Matthew, what did you think about this? Uh, this um this news from Magnus that he may yeah. or may not defend his title. I mean, I, I've never had such a such a huge run of continued success, so it's a bit hard to sort of you know, think <laughs> yourself either, yeah. into that uh, into that uh, thing, and then it's equally hard to think, you know, why would it be nice to give that up? You know, that's uh, I find that very hard. But I mean, you know, um, you know, at times, you know, Magnus has seemed um, a little bored about things um not really about chess but more about the i, I guess the the way of, of of the professional chess player nowadays you know with the um especially that you know the ethos of of, of heavy preparation and, and all that thing so you know in in some ways it's not a, a complete surprise you know to, to to hear him saying this um you know the nice thing is that you know press statements are not given under oath so um you know yeah, I, exactly. we can allow him to to come back from that if he ever if he ever wants to but um yeah, I mean, you know, my feeling about it is that um, is that he's definitely, you know, he's definitely thinking about it. Um, but yeah, you know, whether whether it's something that he goes through or whether it's something that you know, in in um, you know, in a year, year and a half time, um, that you know, he has a different feeling about it. You know, who who knows? But um, I mean, the one thing that, that I do wonder is, you know, whether um, whether you know, if he gave up the world championship, whether he'd still be able to, um, you know, to carry on playing um, because, um, and you know, this is kind of different but somehow it, it sort of gets to what I'm what I mean is that you know when I stopped playing as a professional I carried on playing a Bundesliga for about a year year and a half and you know my initial naive thought was that um well you know take away um you know the um the the, the need to to play professionally and I'm just going to be able to enjoy myself I'm going to be able to play you know creatively try you know crazy stuff and all that you know um, it, it could actually taking something away could actually add something to my game. But you know, your game, the way that you've built up your game all through the all through your career, it's it's really it's an edifice, you know. And uh, every single thing that you've done is a component of it and contributes to its strength, you know, and also some of its weaknesses as well. But take something away from that, 
and suddenly, you know, you're not quite the same player. And I had that experience, first of all, when I decided that I was going to retire from professional chess. When my play, you know, that was late 98, I decided to do that. And, well, just look at my games from uh, 90, late 98 to um, uh, 99 when I finally retired. And you're going to you, you see, you know, uh, well, an awful lot more blunders, an awful decrease in quality and intensity. And um, and then again, you know, when uh, when I, I decided I'm not professional, going to play for for some fun. Again, you saw a decrease in quality as well. So I don't know, you know, just from my point of view, I don't know whether you could take away like a cornerstone of of, of his personality, which is being world champion, and then hope to still play at the same fantastic level. You know, um, I certainly know that if anyone's got a chance to do it, then he could do it much better than than I ever could. But I do wonder, you know, I mean, because I really feel that being world champion is is kind of part of um, of Magnus's competitive um, ability. I mean, I'd find it really weird to see Magnus Carlsen playing and him not being world champion. You know, I mean, that, that, that would be uh, that would be something quite weird. So I, I don't know, but I, I can, um, you know, I, I think he was, you know, he was completely honest when he uh, when he said about it. And uh, and I think that these probably are the thoughts that only somebody who's been at the top for that long, you know, could really have. You know, I think uh, the rest of us who uh, who who just. Uh, <laughs> looked from the foothills we probably just have to uh, to accept it and uh and uh and understand it and uh you know just hope that that's not the case that, that he'll that he'll change his mind yeah and i should have specified for anyone who didn't hear what what magnus had said he said he is feeling less motivated for every world championship and he thinks that if ali reza Farouja were to emerge from the candidates he would be up for a world championship match against him, but suggested that if anyone else wins, he he could potentially vacate the throne. But he said not retire from chess. And he actually, speaking to the issue of motivation, mentioned the possibility of uh, of chasing the 2900 ELO reading, which would be crazy. But yeah, um, I, I agree with what you said, Matthew. I saw a lot of parsing of motivations uh, online, and I, I do think he was speaking from the heart. So all yeah, we can do yeah, is yeah. Ho- hope that he changes his mind or that Ali Reza wins the candidates, uh, yeah. <laughs> one or the other. Um, okay, well, we're going to take one more break, Matthew, and then we've got a bunch of uh, listener questions to get back to. Good news, listeners. According to aimchess.com, I'm now only behind on the clock 75% of the time in my Blitz games. That's actually huge progress for me. I'm going to keep working to bring it up, and I recommend you use aimchess.com to address whatever weaknesses you may have in your game, whether it be playing with the white or black pieces, a particular opening, or a particular phase of the game. They give tailored lessons for whatever their algorithm detects, and of course, their algorithm scrapes the games from the major chess players sites themselves in order to tell you what you need. If you decide to subscribe to aimchess.com after checking it out, be sure to use the promo code perpetual30. Details are in the show notes. Check out aimchess.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back, and we're going to dive right into some more listener-related 
engine listener engine related questions. This one is from Igor Feinstein and Igor writes to say, if chess is fundamentally a draw and today's engines are rated well over 3000, what explains chess engines still regularly beating each other? Does that suggest that engines still have flaws or that they trip up in some quirky situations or uh, end game situations or other phases of the game? Yeah, I mean, I think the key point about it is um, um, is that you know the starting position of chess is basically a draw. I mean that that, but um, but lots and lots of chess positions aren't draws, um, and lots and lots of positions are unfathomable. Still, you know, not calculable by engines. Uh, complex can go many different ways. Different engines with different uh, approaches will find different moves in them. So um, you know, I mean, that's where the richness comes, and that's why you know, with at the TCC, we do um, well. We have this super final every uh, every season. You know, the big final event where two engines fight out a uh, hundred game match, fifty different openings. But you know, I, I did the openings uh, together with a, another nice guy called Jeroen uh, Noman. Uh, I, I did uh, half of the openings for that match, and there the struggle is to find you know complicated. Um, openings that um, that will challenge the engines and that will um, you know ask them to uh, to, to, to to negotiate um, um, unusual problems. So it's um, yeah, I mean they are not perfect, uh, absolutely not. They have their uh, their flaws as well, which you you can you know find out in uh, in unusual situations. And um, and yeah, so much of chess is not a draw, but yeah, just the starting position is really too balanced. And yeah, you let the engines play out. From the starting position nowadays, you'll get a hundred draws. You know, it's um, and uh, even uh, you know, even Fisher Random is uh, kind of in in danger of that as well. Um, uh, so you know, the, the TCC again, they're running a, a Fisher Random competition now, which is uh, always great fun. But uh, I think for the final, they're going to uh, have a small book to try and get some slightly more unbalanced uh, Fisher Random positions. You know, so um, uh, but yeah, I mean. Um, uh, just in general, you know, um, still lots and lots of middle game positions that, um, yeah, that, that have plenty of scope for um, for uh, for play, and still for a long while yet. I think, you know, I think we're still a very long way away from uh, from solving chess with uh, with engines. That that's good to hear. Um, and on a separate, but I guess related note, we have a question from Chris Lott, Patreon supporter of the podcast, and Chris asks, he says, given the advances in the last few years with Alpha Zero and Leela and various combos with traditional engines. Will the standard advice not to play computers to improve one's game against other humans change? Or maybe another way to phrase the question, will mainstream software ever really play like a human? Yeah, th there's interesting questions. I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I believe that uh, that you should play against engines in order to improve your game. I mean, that's the, kind of the um, um, more or less the way I've been working probably for about, uh, you know, six or seven years actually um and uh, and certainly since uh, alpha zero and uh, and game changer so yeah definitely believe there are so many useful ways to use your engines to uh, to improve your game um and then in terms of um yeah um engines becoming uh, uh, human like um yeah i mean it, it's, it's sort of two ways really i mean uh, I, I think we should maybe become a bit more engine like as well you know and uh, and try and get the um uh, there's a you know big parts of engine play that I think are really accessible to humans that we should try and um, uh, and emulate, and in particular, you know, the, the quality of your your evaluation. Um, but I mean, there are also, you know, a lot of um, um, 
uh, yeah, you know, uh, tries to make um, engines that play more like humans. I think Maya on um, you can play against yeah, Maya, Bot on Maya. Shout out to Maya. Yeah, shout out to Maya there. It's, um, um, and also, yeah, I mean, I, I was talking with one of the um, Leela, uh, with another Leela developer who's uh, again, they're all really young, really friendly guys, you know, who just uh, always happy to spend uh, a lot of time explaining stuff to you. But um, yeah, he, he was uh, suggesting some parameters. You know, could you try these and see, you know, how does that affect its play does it play more uh, more human like more towards the uh, you know the level that you'd um, that, that, that could be uh, you know just a direct training partner so i'm i'm, I'm going to try and give uh, those sort of things a go i mean at the end of the day it's all software you know so infinite infinitely tunable and um and uh, and very very powerful so it wouldn't amaze me to be honest if we could um uh, come up with an engine that plays you know much more like um, a, a strong human player um, I mean, what's nice about about Leela uh, in particular is that, you know, even just restricting its search depth, you know, um, it has this lovely positional style. So, it, you know, it plays very much like a, a very good positional player. And then just restricting its search depth, you just sort of, um, if you just get, allow it to search no moves whatsoever, it'll make a few one move blunders in the middle of some lovely positional play. You let it search just a little bit more. It'll make fewer blunders, you know, but won't, won't find a... You know the really complicated tactical line. So even that is a is a beautiful. You know I find it a very um, a very nice way to play against a, a weaker engine that's not just uh, making um, you know stupid catastrophic blunders just on uh, every ten moves just to you know just to keep the rating lower. But you know sort of it, it's kind of a, yeah a very organic way of playing, but just with you know with with, with slightly um, less fantastic um, calculation abilities. I mean, I find that a very pleasurable way to play. And, um, you know, in the Silicon Road, I give a number of examples from that uh, match, and it was fantastic fun. I mean, it was really, uh, I had a great time playing against Leela like that. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's going to, um, people, you know, are working on this, and it's going to happen. But um, but I think, you know, probably we should be, um, you know, we should be trying to um, to become a bit more, uh, a bit more machine-like in our evaluation. Yeah. But, I mean, one thing that, that uh, sort of, it was kind of something that got me thinking about that too. Was that uh, you know that Magnus played uh, uh, about 450 games on on light chess before the World Championship match? You know, bullet and blitz games. Yeah. So I thought, well, okay, let's try and mine that for clues. So I just took the database uh, of, of, of his games. Uh, thank you, light chess. I mean, incredible resource. And just blunder checked it uh, on um, with uh, with my engine. So just looking for you know bad blunders. And uh, I have to say that, you know, you look at Magnus, the quality of Magnus's play, the number of terrible blunders that he makes at that speed, and it's so small, absolutely yeah. unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I mean, the most blunders that were found were in the conversion phase where the engine said, oh, well, you could have had plus 15, and now you're only plus 13, you know. But, uh, but in terms of actual play, the blunders were small, which I think, you know, shows that Magnus's intuition um, really is at that machine level. You know, I mean, uh, it's really, uh, you know, on virtually no thinking whatsoever. You know, I mean, he's maybe playing 2550, 2600, maybe, you know, maybe higher. And I think that is the is what humans should try to emulate. And if I look at my own strength at that speed, I'm maybe, you know, 2100 or something like that, you know. And, uh, and I think that, um, you know, again, if I had my time again, if I'd realized this earlier, I would have been, um, you know, working, putting a, a huge amount of my chess work not on improving all the other areas of my game, but really working on improving the evaluation, because I think that's the basis of so much of your um, of your uh, of your chess strength. You know, it's um, and it, you know also 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 made me you know I thought of that as well because you know if you're looking at um, you know thinking about what happened in the match between uh, Magnus and and Jan as well, you know that Jan after the game six he he, he really 
you know, he he, um, he, he sort of fell away and um, and uh, but he was saying that he you know he made blunders in uh, games eight, nine, and eleven that he just he he just hadn't um, um, he, he couldn't explain right you know I mean he didn't understand why he made those blunders and um, you know I, I really think it was a, it was a case of um, probably that game six affected Jan even more than he'd realised you know yeah. and um, uh, and I've had this experience as a professional that you have a bad loss. And then, you know, somehow you think, oh, my goodness, you know, the next day I actually managed to sleep OK-ish. You know, I don't feel too bad. I do my, my, my morning routine, tactics, puzzles, uh, studies. I'm OK. I'm fine. I've got my preparation. OK, let's go to the game. And then the, the, the most appalling thing that happens to you is that um, you turn up to the game and you feel absolutely nothing. It's as if your heart has been broken and that the whole world around you looks grey and there's no differentiation between any of the moves. You can't tell whether moves are good or bad. And um, you know, when you when you analyze chess, it's it's not linear. I mean, you're 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 looking at stuff and there's little sparks and ideas flying. Oh, don't play knight b5, bishop b3 loses a piece, all those sort of things, you know, and um and in that state, you don't you you don't feel any of that at all. And then you realize, you know, how much of your blunder checking um uh, and how much of your tactical awareness is purely intuitive. It's purely to do with those emotions and those feelings and those sparks of life that you have, you know, when you're functioning normally. And uh, when you lose a bad game like that, you know, it, it takes that away. And then that's the moment that you can blunder. And that's really what happened to me in um, uh, uh, in a couple of tournaments in in '99 um, when I when I was you know thinking of retiring from chess. You know, really that. Uh, um, that that feeling, that terrible feeling of uh, feeling nothing, of knowing how important it is with your head, but your heart just doesn't it doesn't react somehow, you know. And uh, and I felt somehow that maybe that was what you know happened with with Jan that that you know he did his you know he felt okay. I think I've recovered from that uh, shock, but somehow you know um, it had affected him even more than um, uh, than, um, than than he thought. And and you know again that's getting back to you know to uh, to that evaluation being such a big part of your of your chest strength that you know intuitive instinctive uh, stuff that you don't even think about, but that protects you against tactics and protects you against uh, against uh, stupid mistakes. And uh, you know and a loss can really affect that. Yeah, Vaseline Topalov did an interview with Chess24, a brief interview, and that's he highlighted similar points about Magnus. His his stamina, he he mentioned his ability to just play error-free for six to seven hours. So yeah. again, that gets to what you're saying about those Lee Chess sessions that everyone made fun of. But, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, mean, it really, it really, I mean, I'd recommend anyone to, to look at it. I mean, it really is amazing. The other funny thing about it, though, because I was I, when I talked about it with Gary, and Gary said, "Oh, oh, well, tell me then. Tell me then what what, what he was playing." And uh, well, you did notice he'd been playing d4, knight f3, g3 a lot, you know. And uh, interesting. And then it, it came up, you know, came up in yeah. Uh, well, it came up in in, in game uh, in game six, you know. And uh, it was uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he plays uh, he plays a lot of different things on Lee Chess, but it was somehow quite striking, you know, to uh, to see that. But I'd really recommend, you know, anyone, you know, just play through those games and and. Uh, and be amazed because uh, it was a really amazing standard of uh, of instant playing without any sort of thinking, you know. It's, and by uh, the way, how how did the relationship, the opportunity to do the videos with with Gary Kasparov for Kasparov Chess? How did that come about, Matthew? They were so fun to watch. Oh, fantastic! Thanks very much. Yeah, it came about just quite late, actually, and uh, I just got asked. You know, um, um, I don't know whether whether you know maybe Gary. You know, Gary's just nonstop busy, so I don't know whether suddenly you know some sort of gap in his um, in his uh, diary came out, and he suddenly said, "Yeah, okay, we're going to do that." 
But I got, got asked quite late. And uh, funnily enough, through very good fortune, I'd, um, um, I've been planning out uh, my Christmas holidays together with my, uh, with my manager. And uh, we sort of said, well, you know, one of us has got to be uh, present. You know, there's got to be one of us present, you know, throughout the period. And he's got kids. And he said, OK, well, I really do want to take Christmas off. And then I thought, well, you know, COVID lockdown, what am I going to do? You know, just stay at home. And but I could also just take my holiday now, my Christmas holiday now, and uh, and watch the World Championship. You know, okay, that's, uh, you know. So so we just agreed that uh, quite late, and then virtually, you know, literally the next day, um, got called and said, you know, would you would you fancy doing this with Gary? You know, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, it just uh, was just um, made it for for me. You know, just. Um, uh, real you know real real great thing you know i was spending all my time with my engines you know doing all sorts of lovely stuff analyzing the um the uh, uh the world championship and then in the evening you get uh, you know just half an hour to discuss it with gary afterwards you know this <laughs> incredible uh you know obviously you know a huge just a towering figure for me because uh you know i mean he was always there when i was uh, when i was a professional chess player he was the uh, you know the standard that you aspired to and uh yeah you know still in, obviously you know incredibly strong player and you know huge world championship experience you know just uh to to talk about you know what's going on in a match so um no that was uh that was that was incredible and i i enjoyed it very much i thought they uh i thought that the, the the um you know the talks went 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 well i mean i thought gary really had a lot to say about all the um you know the, the match and the and the games as well so uh i, I yeah i enjoyed it an awful lot yeah, and the psychological factors, of course, and any listeners who haven't seen those video recaps, even with the, even knowing the outcome, it's still worth watching. Um, now, Matthew, are there any? Obviously, I I watched them and learned a lot from them. But is there any particular insight from these weeks of recording? Any like sort of big picture takeaway from talking to Kasparov, or like a particular statement he made that really resonated with you? Well, I mean, yeah. I, th I think um, you know the, the um, what we said you know before the match was that um, um, you know the, the big the big question in the match was going to be um, uh, you know we, we we were sure that Magnus was always going to come back from a um, a horrific um, event in the uh, uh, you know during the World Championship you know the big question was whether Young could do that you know and, uh, and yeah you know as it turned out not the only commentators to say that i hasten to add but uh you know but 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 that was you know and that was somehow the um the big thing that um you know that, that came out of the match of course and uh and i think yeah you know probably yeah you know pr pr probably the the one thing that you can't train really you know i don't think you can train to come back from that sort of blow in this sort of situation it's going to be it's partly pot luck and it's partly you know uh down to uh, to 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 the, to the player himself. Um, I mean, what I what I also found um, uh, quite interesting was, um, you know, I, I asked Gary some questions about, you know, well, how did you, how did you do things? You know, the the last couple of um, uh, of days before um, before an event, you know, would would you um, uh, uh, would would you take a rest? Would you take a break? You know, keep your mind fresh. And Gary, you know, <laughs> he obviously found this a very strange question. He you know look, just sort of looked and said. No, 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 no. You know, once I started the event, I went. You know, it was just <laughs> chess, chess, walking, yeah. sleeping, chess. And you know, what what you really felt from uh, from that was, um, uh, and it made made me think because um, you know, uh, Jan talked about how he'd um, how um, you know he'd asked for advice from many different players um, about the match, and uh, but that he'd realised that a, a match was unique, and you realise also that players are unique because I think for Gary, you know, I've got this incredible impression that for him, it was all about one. Once the match came within within sight, he would give it everything. And if it didn't go well, he would simply pour more of that 
you know, astonishing energy that he's got into into grabbing it by the scruff of the neck and making it go right, you know, and um, and uh, but that's again that's something that you know that Gary could do, and that was that was his innate huge personal strength, I think, you know, and uh, and then you notice that yeah, you know, other players have to do it in a in a different way, and um, I think for every player, uh, a world championship is a is a unique experience, and they have to approach it in their unique way, and um, but that really struck me, you know, just. Uh, um, you know, trying to trying to, to 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 find out from Gary, you know, what do you do to relax? What did you do? Um, you know, if you had a loss, even, but you know, the answer kind of was always the same. It's simply, you know, energy, get back yeah. to it. You know, put more in. You know, if, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, and I, I yeah. guess, you know, I, I guess what, what what you also had in those days, though, that um, uh, that's you know not the case now. Of course, Gary always had, um, I guess, a big preparation advantage. You know, I mean, he he. He was right up there with uh, computer preparation, with all you know the way that he organised his training and everything. And uh, and I think you know that was always you always had the when you face Gary, you always had an enormous amount of uh, opening minefields to avoid. Whereas of course you know here in um, uh, in this match, you know you just saw parity in the openings. Essentially, all that work by all the seconds beforehand was to make sure that nothing bad happened. Right. Um, and, you know, and for the rest, you know, uh, you know, um, um, you were going for, for small advantages, but there was never the real likelihood of a huge bombshell hitting you, you know, um, whereas, you know, obviously in Gary's time with, uh, you know, you think of the match against Vichy um, in uh, in uh, 95, you know, this uh, where Vichy got hit by, um, um, you know, in this open Lopez with this enormous novelty, you know, I mean, um, that's kind of unthinkable nowadays, really, you know. What what Gary did afterwards, uh, switching you know with his opponent a bit woozy, switching to the dragon, that could definitely happen. That was really modern world championship approach. You know, it was uh, probably the world's most unpleasant thing that could have happened to uh, to Vichy. You know, that was that was superb uh, psychology and match insight and all that that you could imagine in um, in. Uh, um in a in a match nowadays but um but that um you know the 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 open lopez novelty yeah you'd be very surprised if that happened yeah that makes sense yeah lots to learn from gary but but how to relax during a match probably probably not at the top of the <laughs> not at all, no. <laughs> <laughs> um so we've still got a handful of questions i'd like to power through matthew yeah, if you're okay we Great. Uh, so let's bring it back to engines just for a minute. And then I want to talk more about your your competitive career, which I know you say you're retired, but you still uh, still managed to play at least pre-COVID. Um, so this one is from Ian Mason. Thank you for supporting the potty. And, and Ian asks, he says, uh, do you think the correspondence chess has a future given that 90% of the games at the top level are draws where using engines is permitted? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we've got a got quite a few correspondence players in the in the TCC chat, and they're always <laughs> complaining about the number of draws and how difficult yeah. it is. But um, I mean, what they were experimenting with um, for a correspondence tournament, I think it's happening at the moment, is uh, starting just like the TCC from um, um, complicated openings. So you know, starting uh, uh, eight or nine uh, moves in, and uh, you know, just having a position that um, uh, that is unbalanced one side and then well you know you're going to have to show your skills to uh, to hold it and um i think that to be honest I, I think that's the future of correspondence chess because uh i mean it is just like engine chess i mean it's just uh um you know you you, you can't uh, you need some um uh something extra you know in order to unbalance the game in order to get uh in order to get wins but uh, if you don't have that then yeah i, I would think that correspondence chess would kind of lose its its interest uh you know 
beyond uh, you know research into openings and anything like that but in terms of competitive interest it it, it will uh, it will get lost so um so yeah i mean this, but this approach of um, of uh, starting correspondence players off from unbalanced openings and uh, seeing what they can do i think that's a that's a pretty pretty interesting idea yeah, that makes sense. That that would help. And it seems like engines, I mean, there does seem to have been a bit of a leap, as you've mentioned, in the past few years in their strength. But overall, over the past, say, 20 years, it seems like they average maybe 50 points of ELO uh, a year in, in gain. Do you, do you see that continuing? Are they just going to keep getting better and better? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you know, just as a practical chess player, and uh, I think uh, uh, Dubov said this um, in an interview, you know, you, you have the feeling, to be honest, that they've increased in strength ginormously the past uh, yeah. three years. But yeah, one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, um, computer programmers, a very, very bright guy, uh, Giancarlo Pascuto, he said that, uh, that actually, if you look at it objectively, you know, the, the game's been pretty steady. You know, I mean, uh, the engines just kept on improving i think it's just that you know the style and the things that they can do and the way that we feel they've um they've outstripped us in areas that we were always stronger in i think that's why you know as a practical chess player it feels huge um yeah i mean you would have thought that at some stage you know you could you you would have a limit to how strong they can get but they really are improving all the time i mean partly due to the just amazing number of of, of people in the open source community who keep on working at it i mean uh, you know the Leela guys. It's just a you know just it's just a bunch of you know, kids you'd call them. They're you know right. less than half my age, most of them. You know, and uh, and one of the guys was saying, "Yeah, no, I'm one of the old guys." I said, "You know, how old are you?" He said, "25." You know, it's just <laughs> you know uh, amazing. Wow. So, but I mean, so and you know the Stockfish guys as well. There's a you know a huge community. I mean, one of my videos actually on on, on my Silicon Road site, I, I shared the. Um, um, the uh, the stockfish testing site where you can see you know day on day all the tests that are being run on all the patches and it's 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 the most impressive software development factory I've ever seen you know just uh, from an IT point of view so yeah there's lots of people working in their free time in their spare time just you know making this stuff stronger and stronger and yeah really I mean it it, it does get stronger and stronger so I think we're just going to keep on seeing improvements you know just um, um, you know and and also you know it's because especially the two main engines leader and stockfish just approaching things from 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 completely different angles so stockfish always typically had an absolutely godlike search so calculation but this evaluation was less uh, strong but they've added you know some neural net technology uh, nnue to their um, to their engine and that net is getting bigger and bigger and the evaluation is getting better and better so they're approaching it from that angle with a godlike search and, and a, 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 a stronger and stronger evaluation and then leela had the amazing sophisticated evaluation but its search was uh, was somewhat weaker, so you know, and they're approaching it, you know, somewhat from that angle. So uh, they're trying to make their, their their evaluation better and better, but also to improve their search as well. And um, well, yeah, I mean, the two engines they just uh, you know they just uh, sort of keep on um, uh, getting better and better from different angles. So you know, I think it's gonna progress is gonna carry on for uh, yeah for a long time. I think still, uh, you, you don't get the feeling talking to the developers that they're um you know that they're running out of ideas or running out of uh, of uh, of things to try to uh, to make their engines better i mean to be honest the opposite i think they're coming up with uh, you know with more and more stuff i mean um, there's new neural net technology uh, was it attention networks and they were looking at that now all of a sudden for leela what could we do with that uh, you know would that work could we implement that and um it, you know on the on the leela side of course you know 
it's kind of for them it's kind of uh, you know half a chess project and also half um research into into neural nets into technology that could be applied to you know so many other things as well so um yeah i mean it's uh, it's fascinating it's you know really fascinating subject uh, and i get you know I, i'm an it guy of course so you know obviously i'll, I'll always have some uh, some some extra enthusiasm for um you know for, for the it part of uh, of uh, of chess nowadays but um but still you know it's incredibly you know, exciting and interesting, um, um, yeah, area of chess. I think you know, and uh, with with a lot, you know, a lot of implications for the real world as well. You know, so uh, and it's always interesting. You know, that's what we always um, we, we found about uh, you know Deep Mind. I mean, Deep Mind bring out so many new technologies, so many amazing discoveries. But you know, if you can view it through the prism of what you understand about uh, Alpha Zero and uh, as a chess engine. It suddenly makes so much more sense, you know, rather than uh, just trying to get directly into um, into complicated science. You know, it's uh, so um, now it's very exciting, very exciting period for uh, for chess engines and for, for for IT in general in the world. Huh, amazing to hear that that they can just keep getting stronger and stronger. But but yeah, I mean, the, certainly doesn't seem like they're letting up. And I, I trust trust what you and. Uh, the, the experts have told you. Um, one more engine question, which I think is important because this has come up on the podcast before. It's a common issue. Uh, this is a question from Alex Friedman. Alex says, uh, in winning positions, engines are usually going into complications without fear when the more human way to win would be to simplify and not allow counterplay. This makes it difficult to learn how to win one games using engine analysis. Are there engines that are more instructive in this sense? Yeah, I mean that's a very good point. I mean, um, uh, yeah, they can just uh, certainly from winning positions, you know, engines can can see well pretty much the end often. So, yeah, I mean that, that's a, a bit of a, a bit of a tough one. I mean, to be honest, what I found it's not quite the same, but um, what I found to be a great training, and again, I I, I give an example of that in uh, in the Silicon Road. It's um, taking one positions, you know, clearly one positions for you uh, that you've maybe won in a in a game that you played, and then just try and beat uh, Stockfish from there. And, you know, that gives such an amazing insight into the defensive possibilities of positions that you consider are just, uh, you know, clearly lost hopeless. I mean, um, I gave an example in the Silicon Road. Um, it was a game, um, it was a, a pairs game that uh, that I played with Terry Chapman against uh, Chris Gant and Nick Pert. And we reached this ending, you know, Blacks just, um, I considered it to be trivially winning, you know, and uh, and we won it, uh, you know, very smoothly in the, the game. Then you put it against Stockfish and I, I made one and a half out of three. You know, I, <laughs> I lost one of them as Black and I drew one and then, you know, I, I won one as well. And, uh, you know, the resources and the coordination of the pieces, just it was a Rook and Bishop versus Rook and Knight ending that um, that Stockfish achieved, you know, with uh, King, Bishop, uh, Bishop and Rook and its pawns was just incredible, you know, and uh, and that was a real eye opener again, you know, for me about, um, uh, you know, the, the possibilities that you have in position. So, yeah, now I understand the, the point and I think it's, it's true, um, you know, engines can calculate too well. Um, one nice thing, you know, again, is um, um, that you can try is running um, uh, Leela on um, on very low calculation because then it won't be able to calculate its way to the end, um, but it will just try and feel its way positionally to uh, to a winning advantage, and that can be a very nice way to uh, um, you know to uh, uh, to practice that winning one games. But I really think that um, this training of uh, of trying to win your own one games against uh, Stockfish, you know, and uh, and seeing what it can do to you and how it can resist. That's you know one of the most uh, that's a real eye opener. You know I think it'll really give you a lot more faith in the defensive possibilities after that. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I 
it's whenever I try these like drill exercises, winning like even against the like web-based bots that are not like as strong, it's it's depressing. <laughs> it's depressing, so. but it's also you know it's also uh, you know challenging. I mean, you know, if if you get past that, if you can understand, you know, what's what's going wrong in your thinking process and why you're not actually able to do that, you know, then. Um, you know, it's a big advantage, a big advantage. And, uh, you know, again, you could never get a human a human coach to do that against you. You'd never get anyone with the patience. Oh, OK, I'll try again then, you know. it's um, uh, But funnily enough, you know, I mean, this was um, when I um, I studied with Mark Turetsky for uh, a couple of years in, um, in 94, 94, life-changing experience for me. But, um, but he, you know, he did a lot of that. I mean, he gave you these uh, very complicated studies, which he'd analyzed to, uh, you know, enormously. And then he made you play them out. You know, you didn't know when the solution would end or whatever. You just had to play them out and he would take the other side. And again, you know, one of the most uh, useful and, um, and challenging uh, ways of training that I've done. And, uh, and yeah, with the engines, you can replicate that, um, you know, perfectly. So it's a really, really valuable way of training. Yeah. And you can hear more on Matthew's experiences working with, uh, I am Mark Dvoretsky, legendary trainer in our, in our first interview. I was definitely keen to ask you about that the, the first time around. Um, and the last major topic I wanted to talk about, Matthew, of course, you've alluded several times to being retired, but you do play league games and you've maintained your rating, which is, you know, increasingly rare. I was checking before our interview and there's currently only five people over the age of 40 in the top 50 to follow <laughs> Adams, Anand, yourself, and GM Zoltan Almasi. So it's it's a rare feat, and I think a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, we're not trying to play well. We would love to, but we're not realistically expecting to play at the elite level. But we are hoping to at least maintain our form or improve. So um, Tyron Ross Price had had written in and asked for any advice you could share in in that regard. Yeah, I mean. I think that there's, there's, you know, several things. I mean, first of all, um, you've got to work out for yourself, first of all, um, what makes you enjoy um, over-the-ball play, you know, when, when you actually play. I mean, and that is the the very most important thing that you've got to guarantee. So if um, – and it varies from player to player, you know. So for some players, um, the whole process of preparing for a game, building up to it, making a big event of it, that's that's absolutely – part and parcel of the experience. I mean, Terry Chapman, who we, who we interviewed in Chess for Life, for him, that was a big thing, you know, that whole uh, over-the-ball preparation. That's how he lived for his games. Um, for other people, just, um, you know, being relaxed and turning up to the board and being in a nice, calm frame of mind, that's what they want. But, I mean, that is the basis. I mean, you have to understand what works for you best and what will lead to the greatest enjoyment for playing. Because if you're amateur, that's, you know, that that's um, uh, part and parcel of it. For, you know, it's even the same for me, even if my definition definition of enjoyment is somewhat more lunatic on the lunatic fringe than, uh, <laughs> than most people. But I mean, you know, um, th there are certain types of work that I, that I, you know, really cut out um, just because I decided that it wasn't, you know, I was just trying to be too professional and I, and I wanted to be, you know, to get the enjoyment there for first and foremost. I mean, the other well, thing what, I think, what did you cut out? Um, I actually cut out um, this enormous amounts of sifting through engine analysis that I used to do. You know, I used to um, to run engines for uh, for six hours, multiple engines for six hours on various positions in my openings, and then sift through all the analysis and uh, you know find the the best moves from all the put it all together. You know, it took me hours and hours and hours. And uh, um, I eventually I decided that I that I found that quite distressing work. You know, it was uh, whereas um, when I discovered you know when I really 
sort of got into the idea that I could run engine games, you know, just run massive engine games, get all these amazing, incredible uh, fights and all that, and pick out 10 games from, uh, from that uh, total of uh, games. And that would be my inspiration for playing my openings, you know. That was, um, yeah, that was a huge, that was a lifesaver, I have to say. You know, it was, uh, that was really something that gave me enormous pleasure preparing for my openings without the enormous mental drain that, uh, of, you know, sifting through mathematically move by move, you know, just, um, uh, you know, trying to work out what, uh, what the engines felt was, uh, was 0.18 rather than 0.17. You know, I mean, that was, uh, that was a bad use of, uh, of, uh, of engines, you know, though instructive in its own way. But that, you know, I, I cut that out and, and tried to move to something that would give me, you know, pleasure and also be you know, more useful. And I think, you know, all this uh, running of engine games was a great switch. But I mean, the other thing I think as well is that, you know, as an amateur, what I noticed was that, um, you know, it's very easy to lose track of your chess because you're, you know, you've got your job, you've got family, you've got all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, before you know it, you spent a week and you haven't looked at chess at all. So one of the key things to do, uh, you know, that I had for myself was 15 minutes of chess a day, every single day. It doesn't really matter what it is. It could just be solving some tactical puzzles or um, playing through a, through a nice game. But you've got to keep those, uh, that, those channels active because before you know it, a week's gone past. And that for, for an amateur player, that's like being away from the, from the board for a month. You know, it's just like uh, you can't remember stuff anymore. So, um, so that's very important. And then if you're looking at, you know, if I wanted to do some regular work, what should I do? Um, I'd say tactics, puzzles, evocative um, games uh, that, that, um, that inspire you and um and uh, some end games maybe some end game studies you know and um and that should really be the basis of um of your of your regular work you know tactics because um missing tactics that's the the biggest set, uh, cause of uh, frustration during a game you know if you spend 10 minutes looking at a move and then you realize at the end oh my goodness I'm, I'm dropping a piece that way you know spotting those quickly that's really really important um evocative games games that inspire you that um that, that will stick in your memory and that will that will come easily to your mind when you're actually playing a game when you need a parallel or something like that i mean it's why i love engine games because i find so many of them so unbelievably fantastic you know and uh, and I, you see a theme in them and uh, there's some lovely tactics as well and you think wow i can remember that i'll, I'll remember that uh, that will come into my head you know when i um, when i play and then end games just because it teaches you so much about about coordination of material of limited material it really teaches you about the power of individual pieces about how to get the most out of them and you know my belief is that that is at the basis of uh, of why of, of of engines and why they're so strong and how they evaluate they just understand how to get the most out of their pieces and of course studies um are the ultimate um uh you know the, the ultimate way to um to, to, to get to really understand that and get the most out of that so i mean that i would say would be your uh, your basic training so you know two things that, that require a little bit of work for you and one piece of work that just requires ooh and ah and just being open and you know and uh, and enjoying it and then from time to time you can't get away from it but you know it should be more um just maybe a concentrated piece of work that you maybe do one weekend when who knows you know your wife and kids are, <laughs> have gone to visit the family or something you work on openings you know and you just um work through and you have a look at you know what what your openings uh what the current state of your openings are whether there have been any recent games get some fresh ideas maybe from uh from playing through recent games you know but um uh but that's more i see that more as a you know a periodic chunk of work that you do rather than every day you know 
uh, going through them, going through them. I, I'd say that, you know, in, in general, the um, um, working on your game um, uh, and then just working on your opening in the, uh, just at one period of time uh, concentrated, that's more useful. Because, I, you know, opening work, I tend to find if I do it in chunks, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, I just tend to lose track of it completely. And by the end, I can't remember anymore what I've, what I've been doing. Openings, it's, it's, um, it's kind of logic, right? I mean, it all fits together and it's all... It, it's all very consequent you know if he does that i do that if he does that i do that when he does that i do this you've got to you've got to be you've got to do that that sort of working concentrated fashion i think i don't think it you can you can do it uh you know just a little bit here a little bit there i don't think that that works at all or not for me anyway whereas the other sort of work that I, that I mentioned you can really do little bits of it and it just builds up very nicely you know it, it really builds up to uh to give you extra strength so that's what i would recommend you know and um but you know the most important basis being really that um, you've got to make sure you understand what makes you enjoy playing and go for that, and uh, and also you've got to make sure that uh, every single day you do a little bit of chess, just to make sure that your brain keeps active and keeps and that that little space in your brain that's de devoted to chess that that stays there and doesn't get pushed out by you know arguments at work or uh, or uh, you know uh, having to repair a, a leaky tap or something like that you know. Uh, <laughs> You've got to you've got to you've got to look after that little that little spot in your brain for uh, for chess. Excellent, yeah, the fantastic advice. And Matthew, um, as we record this on uh, Friday, what's today's date? December seventeenth or something like that. Uh, there's no quit in COVID. <laughs> the yeah. the Omicron is is wreaking havoc. I know in uh, in yeah, so in many UK, places. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So are are you going to manage to? Are do you have plans of competing over the board again? If and when this ever ends <laughs> yeah no i do want to compete again actually i mean it's um i mean what, what i found is is that every time i i compete i learn an awful lot you know i mean the lessons that you get in over the board play you know can't be compared to what you um you do in analysis it's it just uh you know and for me actually you know the whole process of preparing for a game uh you know i find it incredibly enriching process so um uh yeah i definitely do want to uh do want to play um yeah the only thing is is that you know I, i'm um, quite close to my parents and uh you know helping to to, to look after them during uh and support them during uh during the lockdown, yeah, I'm 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 a little bit nervous about um uh, about doing too much, you know, and exposing myself too much, and then yeah, you know, bringing uh, bringing COVID um, uh, over to them really. So you know, that's that's kind of what's um, what's holding me back at the moment. Uh, I've done some little things, you know, uh, gave a, a lecture in uh, in at London Classic recently, you know, and um, done some small things, but I don't at the moment I don't really want to uh, to get into. Uh, uh, to anything like that i mean just hoping like i think like all the rest of us that you know there is you know some end to this and that um uh and that we're going to be able to reach a state where you know even if it's not gone uh that you know that you that at least the risks are are not too terrible even if you would catch covid you know but uh at the moment you're sort of very nervous about that uh you know well i mean you know you see um uh you know somebody like uh like 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 nigel who i you know i spoke to at um at uh, london classic um you know a couple of saturdays ago and and you see that he's uh you know, uh, in in um, in hospital with with oxygen and all that. You know, it's uh, yeah. it's still a it's a really scary thing still. You know, so um, uh, and yeah, you know, if, again for yourself, you'd you'd worry a little bit less. I'm in decent health, you know, but uh, obviously when you're uh, you know when you've also got your your responsibilities towards your family and stuff like that, it's it makes you nervous. You know, it's uh, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do really want to play. I mean, I, I'm not. Um, I've never played, you know, even as a professional, I never, I was never somebody who played all the time, all the time. 
Um, and um, you know, my my my, my t- I'm not. A, you know, you see somebody like Magnus, who you feel could happily play 365 days a year, every type of chess, and be happy. I'm you know, I'm not that sort of person, but I do enjoy the the whole um, the whole process of uh, getting ready for a game and going there, and then you know, putting in your preparation and uh, tricking people in time trouble, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, all the stuff you can't get uh, just out of analysis. You know, it's uh, so. Um, yeah, hopefully it'll happen sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. But I echo what you're saying about the need to be cautious right now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Matthew, if, if we just have one more question, if we could get to it rapid yeah, no, fire. No problem. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and this one is uh, from Manuel Tur, who says he bought Chess for Life after reading about it in Game Changer, and it's become one of his all-time favorite chess oh. books. And and as I've mentioned before, it's about adult improvement, so definitely recommend it for for inspiration and insights to uh, to any uh, listeners. Um, and Manuel writes the Carlsbad structure features prominently in Matthew's book on the Queen's Gambit declined in Chess for Life and in Game Changer. And what is it about this structure that fascinates you so much? Yeah, I mean, t- to be honest, it it um, uh, the fascination for it came from Mark Doretsky. I mean, um, I've uh, told this story about, you know, how um, he said, what do you know about the Carlsbad uh, structure? And I said, well, ah, you know, and, and then he said, let me tell you, you know, and uh, five minutes of, um, of uh, you know, complete historical survey, all the plans. And, uh, you know, it really opened up to me, you know, how could you what what how could how you could understand something you know and and what you would need and the whole breadth of what you could have to understand something i mean you know so some in some way that you know this uh, this Carlsbad structure is sort of talismanic for me i mean it's uh, it's, it's it was um, an example to me of how deep chess knowledge can get and i think that's why i've kept on coming back to it but also you know the um the breadth of plans and the breadth of styles and uh, the stuff that you can do with it is incredible. You know, it's just uh, this structure and then all the, the 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 great players have played it and all of them have had their own, you know, tweak on it and uh, their own way of playing it. And, um, you know, you've got the minority attack, you've got uh, the central attack that Botvinnikel always chose. Karpov always did some sort of minority attack, but in an odd way and somehow it always worked. Alpha Zero, you know, suddenly started attacking like a lunatic on the king side, which I've never <laughs> seen before. And you know, it's um, uh, th- there is really so much, uh, so much richness to it. And uh, I think you know, it, yeah, you know, it's also for me a, a big example of the richness of chess. That you know, a, a pawn structure like that, and and uh, you know, there's there's so many different ways of playing it, so many different ways of approaching it, so much subtlety in how you need to react to White's queenside play. And, uh, you know, that um, it's just, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of talismanic for me. But it started with, uh, you know, with, uh, with Droretsky, you know, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, I said, you know, uh, we said before, it's, you know, it's, it was a, that was a huge, such a huge moment in my, uh, in my chess career, you know, and, uh, and uh, somehow that structure is, uh, keeps, him, uh, keeps him living within me, I think. Excellent. And again, more on more on that experience can be found in our first interview. Um, well, Matthew, I, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. This has been amazing. So many insights about uh, everything ranging from the World Championship match to chess longevity to uh, to engines, of course. Um, so the book is called Silicon Road to Chess Improvement. Also strongly recommend all of uh, Matthew's other books, uh, often in collaboration with Natasha Regan. Um, anything to add, Matthew, before we wrap things up here? 
No, I mean, it's just, um, um, I mean, just the, the, the point about the, the book really is to try and make um, uh, chess engines, you know, useful for, um, for, uh, for us to, uh, to use and also to try and get a sense of the, you know, enjoyment and the, um, uh, and the, and the human value that, uh, that working with engines can have, you know, and uh, um, I, I think, um, uh, yeah, you know, we, we tend to only look at engines as, uh, oh, you know, like uh, correcting marking, uh, you know, correcting a test somehow, you know, oh, you did it right, you did it wrong. But uh, I think it can also help to um, uh, to generate all the feelings and all the uh, emotions and all the, um, uh, the the material that you need in order to play chess well practically, you know, and uh, and uh, you know that's really what the what, what the book is about. And uh, yeah, I said I'm, you know, I'm tremendously enthusiastic about engine chess, but it also comes you know about because I've used so much of it in my own play, and uh, and I think it's really you know helped me. So yeah, you know, hope, hopefully people will uh, will enjoy that um, enjoy that as well. It's uh, and I think you know in any case, I, I think it gives a, a nice introduction as well to to engines in general. And I think you know. The role of engines is only going to keep on growing in chess, and um, and I think it's uh, you know very important to to keep up with that, so that you can keep up with uh, you know the whole breadth of uh, of chess as it develops. Uh, yeah, well said, and um, I, I imagine you're going to stay on this beat, Matthew, the engine beat. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's too fascinating, you know, and uh, too many interesting things happening to uh, to give it up. So, um, but yeah, and obviously, you know, thrilled to uh, to follow, you know, great human chess like um, like the World Championship as well. You know, that's the uh, that is still the the ultimate thrill. But uh, the nice thing then is that you can use engines to you know to deepen your understanding of it and give you you know insight that you would. Normally, you would have had to wait, you know, years for it before, and uh, and now you can get it, uh, you know, so quickly. Okay. Well, the chess world is richer for your your explanations and your your um, keeping track of it and sharing it with everyone. So, thank you. And we should give one last plug to your YouTube channel, Ooh. also called the Silicon Road to Chess Improvement, where Matthew is doing free, obviously, uh, little snippets of things he picked up from engines and and stuff from the World Championship and so on. So, Matthew, this has been great. Um, hope to do it again someday if you Brilliant. can find the Fantastic. find the time to uh, to write another book somehow. <laughs> um, but but greatly appreciated and uh, and uh, have a good night. Oh. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Ben. Perpetual Chess is proud to be a member of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to check out their sports and pop culture related podcasts as well. I also, as always, would like to thank Matthew Passy for producing the show. Without Matthew, Perpetual Chess would not exist. And I want to thank everyone who listens to the show, whether it be on your own without telling anyone about it, keeping it secret, or if you're helping to spread the word, all the better, whether it be telling a friend about a particularly impactful interview or whether it be writing a positive review online, all of that stuff helps get the word out and helps Perpetual Chess continue to grow. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those that provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible in its current form. And I would like to give uh, special thanks to the following people and entities. Here comes the list. Uh, Chessable.com, David Lazarus of Lasman Chess, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adaptive Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, 
I am Dimitri Schneider, Douglas Wilson, I am Eric Rosen, Farhan Tharwar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Hampus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Michael Sullivan, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nays Twitch channel, Perry McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, Rick Rivas, Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following, Hashtag ChessPunks, who are the adult improvers on Chess Twitter, Ace Vallega, Adam Fowler, Adam Johansson, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Gruber, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Bruno Johnson, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadi, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens, of Rose City Chess in Portland, the Chess Dojo, Chess for Charity, Jacksonville, Chess Patser, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskacek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Eric Baldwin, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Mayo Perea, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letard Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jay Tuttle, Jay Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeff Davis, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Horland, Jerry Wells, Jesse DeCumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Jones, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almaguar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfellow, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Reiferth, Lars Wiesen, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Emilyanova, aka Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Butolovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, 
Matt Ferrari, Matthew Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigma Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, Pablo Davila, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited in Switzerland, um, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard McCormick, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Samson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malagu, the Say Chess YouTube channel and publishing empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwater, Sergey Makagon, Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, Stephen Miller and Tom George, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, Zachary Hoskin, and Zhivkor Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.